on your radio, and our songs can pass your test. You own country, you own western, you say you've given us a choice. You may own the airwaves, but you'll never own my voice. It's the commons, our right of birth. And you hoot on the music all around the earth. Our future is your down. The opinions expressed on corporations and democracy are those of our guests and the hosts, and not necessarily the management of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. And good afternoon and welcome to Corporations and Democracy for September 9th, 2021. This is the program that examines how corporations dominate our democracy and what citizens are doing to replace corporate dominance with true democracy. I'm Steve Scalmanini with co-host Annie Esposito. Today we're going to spend an hour discussing the, a recent report that caught our attention. It's called State of Insecurity, the Cost of Militarization Since 9-11. It's published, uh, it was just published a week ago by three authors from the National Priorities Project, and that's part of the Institute for Policy Studies. With us is one of those three authors, Ashik Sadiq. Ashik is a research analyst for the National Priorities Project, and the mission of the project is to inspire individuals and movements to take action so our federal resources prioritize peace, shared prosperity, and economic security for all. In 2014, the National Priorities Project was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in recognition of its pioneering work to track federal spending on the military and promote a U.S. federal budget that represents Americans' priorities, including funding for people's issues such as inequality, unemployment, education, health, and the need to build a green economy. Well, that was seven years ago, and uh, I sure don't see that these needs have changed over those seven years. Mr. Sadiq works uh, on an analysis of the federal budget and military spending with emphasis on how militarized U.S. domestic and foreign policy interacts with efforts to address accelerating inequality and climate change. Speaking of which, he's a founding member of the Climate Mobilization. He holds a degree in neuroscience and behavior from Wesleyan University with which he worked for several years as a research coordinator at the Bronx VA Medical Center, studying PTSD in Iraq and Afghanistan combat vets. So, let's look at the cost of militarization since 9-11, and is more militarization of the U.S. since 9-11 making us more secure? Ashik Sadiq, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, the in- interesting thing about your study is everybody knows that we spend, you know, multiples of trillions of dollars, and it's uh, a lot. But you've looked at the expenditures holistically and found out that military spending is even bigger than we think. <laughs> what did you come up with? Yeah, so over the past few years, over the past, uh, you know, 20 years from year to year uh, since we've been at war in all these countries in the Middle East uh, after 9-11, there have been all sorts of calculations of how much that has cost, um, including uh, from our um, uh, our allies at the Cost of War Project, which has done a really good job at quantifying the direct and indirect costs of the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and like all the countries that the U.S. has uh, intervened in since then. Um and they actually put out a study on the same day as ours, uh, bringing the cost up to $8 trillion since 2001. 
Um, so in this study that we did, we wanted to take a more holistic look at um, not just military spending and war spending, but all the forms of domestic militarization as well that has really um, intensified and, and accelerated uh, since, since 9-11. Um, and that includes spending on homeland security, immigration enforcement, uh, drug enforcement, um, uh, federal law enforcement, um, including policing. So all those costs from the federal government added up together over the past 20 years, uh, we, we assessed as um, adding up to $21 trillion. Um, so that includes uh, about $16 trillion going to the military itself, um, another $3 trillion going to veterans programs, um, almost $1 trillion going to homeland security, um, another three-quarters of a trillion going to federal law enforcement, and that all adds up to $21 trillion over the past two decades. Ouch. You know, I remember <laughs> when the only time you saw words like trillion had to do with space travel. <laughs> Maybe we could take a minute just to say what a trillion is. It's, it's almost hard for us to conceive of a trillion. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny because, um, you know, in, um, in public discourse, in the media, often we hear about, like, millions uh, in spending on this or that, like billions from the federal government. But it's, it's rare that we get into the realm of trillions. And, and um, uh, like recently, folks might have been paying attention to all the discussion around the, uh, the, the jobs and infrastructure bill that's being deliberated uh, through budget reconciliation. That's being uh, touted as somewhere between 2 to $3 trillion. So there's a lot of debate over you know, whether or not that's too much in, in federal spending. Uh, so what we really wanted to do with this report is not just, you know, account for how much we've spent on militarization as a country in 20 years, but also really to put things in perspective. Like when we talk about trillions and, or even billions in spending on all, any sort of social priorities in infrastructure, education, or health or anything, um, there are these huge debates over whether or not that's too much coming from the public sector or not. Um, but the, this massive sum of money that goes to militarization is rarely uh, seen uh, you know, as problematic at all. It's just taken for granted, or you know, people often aren't even aware that it's really adding up to this much. Um, so we really want to make the point um, uh, not, not just to account for you know, whether all the spending on militarization is worth it. I mean, in fact, there are many ways that, that we lay out that, that it's clearly been harmful. I mean, even if you're talking about national security in its own terms, it, it has not achieved the goals that uh, that all these types of spending were, were purported to have. Um, but also, it, 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 it does show, like a silver lining, um, is, is that it shows that it, it is possible to invest massive amounts of resources in things that are seen as national priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a matter of political will and, um, you know, really having a government that's accountable to the people and, and our needs. Yeah, my two cents worth on that on that number is that uh, you know the workforce in the country is a little over 100 million. But just for rough numbers, if you figure 100 million, and you split that into the you know the multi-trillion dollar figure, it comes out to two hundred ten thousand dollars per working person. So everyone out there that's a wage earner has been. It's roughly, you know, ballpark of another mortgage or half a mortgage of a house in this day and age that we're spending on the militarization since 9-11. It's like having another, like paying another mortgage. (laughs) $210,000 per working person. Wow. Yeah, so and so most of us are thinking that military spending the six trillion or a piddling little eight trillion. It's really, it's really more like you're finding twenty twenty one trillion more more like that if you add it all up. Uh, I, maybe we should 
go back just a little bit and talk about what discretionary spending means because I, th I think you've done work mostly on discretionary spending, which includes the military spending, but maybe dipped a little bit into the, the other budget that isn't passed on every year also? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So in the federal government, there are two big categories of federal spending. One is discretionary spending and one is mandatory. So discretionary spending is basically the budget that Congress allocates every year. So every year Congress spends uh, the, the bulk of the year uh, passing bills for different pockets of money uh, for the federal government. So for all the different agencies and departments of the government, um, there are um, up to 12 different budget bills that are passed. Sometimes they're passed in big, like omnibus bills. Um, what, what's happening now is, is called a budget reconciliation bill, which is just a massive amount of spending beyond a normal uh, year's discretionary budget. But um, the, the, that, that's the basic difference in a nutshell. Discretionary spending is what Congress uh, negotiates every year. And then mandatory spending is stuff that is, uh, is basically permanent spending. So it includes things like Social Security, like Medicare, um, things that are just seen as, um, you know, like uh, uh, they're often called entitlements, like any citizen um, and like taxpayer or citizen is, is entitled to these things um, based on their taxes. So, so, so that, yeah. Go ahead, finish. That's, that's fine. Um, yeah, that, that, that's the basic difference. So what, when we talk about military spending, uh, most of military spending is in the discretionary budget. Um, as well as other forms of spending like education and um, uh, transportation, infrastructure, like a lot of that is, is negotiated every year. And of the discretionary budget that Congress allocates every year, for the past few decades, the military budget has been half or more than half of that. So that's good for people to bear in mind while we're talking about this. Most of this military spending is discretionary. We don't have to do it. Um, one thing that uh, well, let me ask you about Biden, because he's come up with a, a new budget, presumably different from his predecessor. Is it? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so in a bunch of major ways, it, it is different. Um, in some other ways, it's not so different. Uh, so I'll just start by the way, with the ways that it is different. Um, so for uh, the past few decades, uh, forms of social spending have been um, not prioritized as much as military spending, but consistently military spending has been uh, half or more than half of the discretionary budget. So in the past year, for the first time in, I think, uh, decades, uh, certainly uh, since the Trump administration, uh, non-military sp spending, so forms of social spending, are actually more than military spending, mm -hmm. which, which is great, like as an overall proportion. However, the military budget is still higher <laughs> than, than it was even under Trump. So. Like, and, and that's a result of, uh, since the pandemic, since the major economic crisis in the past year, there's much higher demand for public spending across the board, um, which, which is a good thing. I mean, the, the federal government can't afford to spend more on things that meet people's needs. Um, so it's a good thing that social spending is higher. Uh, however, the military budget does not need to be growing the way that, that it is uh, proposed to grow. So I think, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's it, the, the, there's a good and bad there. <laughs> like like it's good that finally after many years social spending is increasing, but um, the military budget really should be shrinking at this point, point. Um, yeah. and that's uh, we're 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 really not there yet. Um, one of the things that I wonder is how do you do this because I've heard there's never been an audit of the Pentagon because nobody knows how, <laughs> how do you how do you figure it out. 
I mean, is that true that the Pentagon has so much money they don't know how much money they have? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, this, uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. One is just the massive influence of uh, military contractors um, and the lobbyists on, on people in Congress. Um, uh, the Pentagon is just not held to the same standards of, of scrutiny that any other part of the government is. Like any other uh, agency, especially if you're talking about social spending, um, there's all sorts of, you know, like nitpicking and, you know, asking, is this worth it? Like, are they spending spending this the right way or not? Is it being wasted somehow? Which, you know, if that were applied consistently across the board, that would be, you know, worthwhile, uh, you know, concerns to bring up. But they're just ever brought up for the Pentagon. Like, the Pentagon had its first ever independent financial audit in 2017, only four years ago, and it failed. Uh, <laughs> like, there were just massive sums of money within that audit that were just, like, lit- literally not accounted for. And uh, people uh, heading up the Defense Department were just like, oh, well, we didn't expect it, and it's fine. Don't worry about it. And since then, there have been, I think, two more uh, in the past four years, and it failed those as well. So... Um, so, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's good that finally, after many decades, there were audits at all. However, it continue, the, the Pentagon just continues to fail these audits. And um, uh, I, I think there's some more pressure now than there was several years ago to make these audits count for more and to start to impose penalties for parts of the government that, that failed to undergo clean audits. Um, so I think um, public pressure is starting to rise. More people in Congress and the Senate and the House are starting to you know, get much more pointed in the questions they're asking and, and raising the threats of penalties for continuing to fail audits, but um, we're, we're still not there yet. And, and uh, just, just to add more context, there are just many stories year after year that come out about all the waste and fraud uh, that's, that's going on in the Defense Department where all sorts of, um, like, blunders and, like, abuses are, are raised about uh, things that cost millions or billions more than they were supposed to uh to, to cost or um yeah it, it, it's just a, there are all sorts of shenanigans happening um in, in budgeting for the military that um yeah where, where things just don't go where they're supposed to go or they cost more than they're supposed to cost and um often um military spending is is inserted into other federal priorities like uh, last year when uh, massive um funds were being proposed to uh, help bail out uh, the economy and to send um, support directly to people who are suffering during the economic crisis. Somehow, uh, Congress managed to insert billions of dollars in, in aid for military contractors who definitely <laughs> did not need it. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, this is just a systemic problem where military contractors just get away with all sorts of nonsense. And, um, and yeah, over, over half of the military budget goes to private contractors. It doesn't go to, uh, you know, like supporting the troops the way that uh, many uh, member, Amer- Americans might think is the case. So when we talk about cutting military spending uh, and spending to the Pentagon, we're not talking about, you know, taking resources away from the troops. We're talking about limiting all the waste and fraud that takes away from, you know, like anything that could actually be called national security, including just basic living standards for, for service members, which, which often are not great because contractors are, are able to, you know, skim resources away from um, all sorts of more more needed things. It was only a few years ago that the uh, the budget was, uh, what, $750 um, billion, I believe. The, the military budget was um, 
passed to, and then that was unheard of i mean just unheard of level and um but despite the big surprise at that, that time it's gone up since then even is it not yeah so so this year uh, the proposed military budget is the highest it's been since um i i think the previous peak was at the height of uh the, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars in Obama's first term, mm-hmm. uh, which was the second highest it had been since any time since World War II. Yeah. So we're now on track for, um, I mean, if, if Pentagon spending keeps increasing at the rate that it has been for the previous years, we could soon have the second highest spending um, of any year since, since World War II, which mm-hmm. is the last time, uh, you know, like uh, th- there was a, a, a massive war buildup that most Americans would probably recognize as somehow necessary or, you know, where they're... (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, there are lots of questions you can raise about all American wars, uh, certainly in the past century since World War II, but um, I I think uh, there probably aren't many people today who would argue that the wars we're in right now are um, justified in the ways that previous ones are thought to have been justified. Mm So I think there are really big questions about whether the current level of military spending matches uh, any any real need for this level of spending. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the contracts, uh, the contractors, the defense industry. Um, <laughs> that kind of takes my breath away, some of the stuff here about that. Um, well, maybe you sort of referred to indirectly previously that they pay for a lot of lobbyists that are able to more or less own our Congress members. Yeah, and uh, there there are a lot of ways that happens. Um, uh, so, just to to put it in perspective again, in, in just dollar amounts. So, of the um, the entire military budget, which this year is seven hundred forty billion dollars, um, about half of that goes to private contractors. So that's um, well, like it, it's not staying. It's it's not going to directly supporting um, service members or equipment or anything like that. It's it's. Uh, going to companies like Lockheed Martin, like Boeing, like Raytheon, um, for all sorts of things, including like weapon systems and other equipment. But many of these things um, that that billions of dollars are being spent on um, are not even things that um, like generals or or people at the head of DoD are even asking for. It's just uh, the companies are directly lobbying Congress members to to buy these these services that may or may not be considered strategically necessary and there are there are various reasons um that that these are justified one is that they they create jobs in certain districts because the manufacturing facilities uh the the factories are in certain districts that um maybe don't have a lot else going on economically or they're just big job creators so these are um that, that that's how they're justified to many communities across the country and um these these jobs uh, are often distributed in many congressional districts uh, that make them um, desirable uh, to to the Congress members and, and to to the local communities, um, which um, you know is understandable because there are many parts of the country where uh, public investments have have gone down, where other uh, businesses or other um, pillars of the local economy have have disappeared over time, but. Um, uh, the problem is that the military-industrial complex, like these jobs, are presented as the only alternative, and it really doesn't have to be. Like we're at a point now in our history where there are just huge uh, challenges that that could be solved, um, like, like climate change, by creating lots of jobs and lots of um, 
lots of more localized um, economic efforts that could revitalize communities in different ways. So it really doesn't have to be the case anymore for, for any of these communities that military industrial jobs are the only way forward. Um, but again, this is a matter of public will. Like there, there needs to be um, much more pressure for different kinds of public spending to meet different priorities. You'd think there would be, because some of these defense contractors are laughable. Earlier this year, there was all these videos about an F-35B that shot itself down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. It's it's, uh, like the F-35 is probably the best known example of just a huge boondoggle, like these massive um, uh, jets, these weapon systems that that don't work. Story after story keeps coming out about how many billions of dollars have been spent on developing these, and they just... Uh, like all the, all these accidents happen or just uh, things go wrong and really laughable that in a way that would be laughable if people weren't being harmed. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's uh, yeah, it, it, it just really deserves much more scrutiny than it gets. Um, like more people should, should be aware of, of how much horrible waste is going on and, and there should be alternatives because like the justification for the F-35 does often come down to like, well, you know, it's creating this many jobs or supporting this many jobs in these uh, in these districts, um, in whichever states. And um, you know, if that's the case, then those communities deserve like other alternatives, uh, you know, producing things and um, like supporting services and creating uh, new types of industrial things that that have better social purpose. Um, so these are systemic problems that need to be addressed in systemic ways. One of the things that startled me that you came up with had to do with uh, the stock market and the the top five defense contractors are worth $100,000 and how does that compare to the overall stock market? Uh, that is a great question. So yeah, um, one of the takeaways in, in terms of uh, military contract contracts is that um, in uh, in the past twenty years, the war on terror has just been a huge profit generation generator for just a handful of companies. Like in the past uh, uh, twenty years, so in two thousand one, uh, stocks in the top five defense companies were worth about ten thousand uh, dollars when the war on terror began, and they're now worth um, almost a hundred thousand dollars today versus only sixty one thousand for the overall stock market. So the war on terror has just been a massive profit maker for a few of these companies who've, who've, um, yeah, well, like the stock market has in in part been based on, um, on, on, on war itself. So, so there are questions there also about, you know, like who is the economy as it's currently constructed for if, if a handful of these companies are profiting while massive devastation is being wrought on, on parts of the world in the Middle East and costing American lives and um, just huge drain of resources. So it's, it's sort of hard to get a handle on all this. That that sort of gives you an idea right there, the how how they compare, the contractors compare to the overall stock market. Um, and, and this whole thing is so slippery, the Pentagon budget. I mean, it's amazing that you've been able to wrestle this to the ground and come up with some, some answers. Uh, even though it's hard to tell exactly what the Pentagon budget is, you still are thinking in terms, you and your fellow researchers, of maybe cutting it in half would be a good way to approach it. 
Yeah, that's uh, so the National Priorities Project uh, has been advocating for the past few years that um, the U.S. government could safely cut uh, the Pentagon budget um, about in half. Uh, so uh, out of a budget of over $700 billion, we think it's possible to safely cut um, at least $350 billion. Um, and most of that is from, um, like, first, just better accounting um, and, uh, yeah, actually accounting for how all the money is spent and cutting a lot of waste and overhead. Um, but also cutting back on um, a lot of redundant weapon systems, on cutting down the number of uh, foreign bases that the U.S. has. The United States has um, about 800 military bases outside of the United States all over the world, um, which uh, many of which are left over from World War II, basically. There are lots of them in Germany and Japan and, um, uh, and like throughout Africa. And these are um, way more than any other country has. The next country, I think, is Russia, which has something like 20. And China, which is often uh, you know, seen as uh, the U.S.'s great adversary right now, has only three foreign bases. <laughs> so, so that's three foreign bases versus like about 800. So it's just, um, you know, most, most people, when they hear this, are just like, whoa, why do we... Like, that doesn't sound necessary, and they're right. <laughs> and, um, yeah, a lot of these bases are just uh, very expensive artifacts of previous wars. Um, they're very costly. They're economic. They're environmentally uh, pretty destructive. Often they create a lot of tensions with uh, the local populations of the countries they're based in. Um, so, so that's a really big pocket of money that we could cut. Um, and, um, yeah, there, there are just a lot of different... Uh, pieces of, of the Pentagon budget that are uh, that no longer reflect the global reality we're in. So those bases are a perfect example of unnecessary spending. They have to be maintained and staffed and everything. Uh, what about exactly. overall overall spending is also way out of balance with all of the rest of the world, I believe. The whole yeah, overall so, spending. So the U.S. Uh, the U.S. military budget is uh, more than the next uh, I think 11 countries combined. Uh, each year, it's, it, the number changes. Sometimes it's the next seven countries combined. Sometimes it's the next eight. But as of the past year, it's, it's more than the next uh, 11 countries combined. Um, and China, again, which is you know seen as the U.S.'s current biggest rival, is only about a third of that. Um, and uh, and th there are over 140 other countries in the world that, that have less combined than the U.S. itself. So, um, you know, some people will see that as a good thing, like the U.S. should have the biggest uh, military in the world. But again, we just want to make the point that, like, for, like, even if we cut our military budget in half, we would still have by far the largest military in the world. And um, there are just so many questions about how resources are distributed within the current uh, military footprint. And, um, like, many analysts uh, across the political spectrum will point out all sorts of waste or redundancy or just things that are uh, that are not good use of the resources. Um, and, and again, if we go back to the contractors, um, we, we, like out of the $21 trillion in the militarized budget that we define, um, a huge chunk of that is going to contractors um, to the tune of um, uh, about $7 trillion just going to private companies. You mentioned China twice, so... What is it about China? I mean, really, we are we are not at war with China. We're not about to be at war with China. Uh, is this just really have more to do with uh, commercial competition than terrorist threats? Uh, that's a great question. So, I mean, there there are forces I think that that do 
won't want the U.S. to be at war with China. <laughs> uh, that does speak about China in pretty pretty belligerent ways, um, and that's and that's increasingly uh, across the bipartisan aisle. Um, for the past few, like uh, in the Trump administration, you heard a lot more. Um, belligerent talk about China than in previous years, but I think uh, to some extent that has continued in the Biden administration, um, and um, there's this sort of new Cold War type framing, like China's the, the the great global threat to the American way of life, or whatever, and it's it's uh, being used to justify increased military spending, like even despite the now the end of the war in Afghanistan, um, and a lot of the sort of war on terror framing has been... Um, be emphasized as as the U.S. Uh, gets more concrete about withdrawing from from the wars of the past twenty years. However, that's not uh, being reflected in less military spending overall. It's it's not clear how resources are going to be out, reallocated from Afghanistan to other things. Um, and uh, there, there are plenty of documents from within the DoD and in uh, uh, committees in Congress that oversee military spending that are calling for continuous increases and reemphasizing on uh, great powers conflict. So preparing for the possibility of open wars with, with China, with Russia, uh, perhaps with Iran or North Korea. But, um, yeah, it's, it's really worrisome. It should be worrisome to, to most Americans because, uh, like, war is always, uh, like, should be the absolute last resort. And uh, it, it, it's just not clear why war is, is something that we're moving toward if if there isn't um you know some some clear threat and and if you really look at um a lot of the reasons that are being presented it, it turns out that actually the u.s military has been um you know sort of doing some belligerent posturing in the past few years and it ultimately does i think come down to economic concerns that um the global economy has slowed down. Uh, the U.S. economy has uh, been fluctuating in different ways for all sorts of systemic reasons, and like massive inequality um, and uh, war with China is kind of a scapegoat. I, I think one that you know can be very profitable for defense contractors or other profiteers that that benefit from a war economy, but are not interested in you know an economy that would be better for for, for the civilian population, which is the vast majority of people in this country. Mm -hmm. Let me mention to listeners that we're talking with Ashik Sadiq uh, of the uh, National Priorities Project, and we're talking about uh, whether or not more militarization of the U.S. since 9-11 is really making us more secure, and uh, and talking about the cost of militarization since 9-11, which is the subtitle of a report out recently from the National Priorities Project, for which Ashik is one of the three authors. Uh, the main title is State of Insecurity, the Cost of Militarization Since 9-11. And if anyone would like to ask any questions or comment, uh, the number to call here is 895-2448. That's Henry Code 707-895-2448. So, Ashik, I wonder if you would care to compare military spending to diplomacy spending. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I let me see if I have those numbers on hand right now. Um, I can say diplomacy spending is a lot less. <laughs> so, so diplomacy <laughs> that spending was easy. typically, yeah. What we, um, so diplomacy spending is uh, often um, like we would include that as part of that the State Department spending, uh, things like um, foreign aid. Um, 
So I don't recall that offhand, but it's it's absolutely a lot a lot less than than what we're talking about here in the military. Um, I think uh, we we actually thought um, what, when we were defining what to include in our militarized budget um, in our accounting over the past twenty years, whether or not we should include State Department, because uh, there are all sorts of critiques that have been made over time about um, how the U.S. uses diplomacy in the State Department and whether or not that just um, uh, whether the U.S. actually is doing diplomacy uh, on its own terms or whether the diplomacy is kind of uh, supporting the militarized agenda. So I think um, over the past 20 years, um, I'm sure others have looked into it and might have more thoughts about it. But overall, we would say that diplomacy spending is something that we should be allocating many, like more than we are on, on a lot of the forms of military spending that we're doing right now. Um, right, right now, it's just massively skewed towards militar- militarized stuff and uh, not nearly enough on diplomacy and aid. You have a, a lot to say about the different agencies, Homeland Security and um, Border Patrol, Customs Border Patrol, Department of Justice, uh, Department of Energy, the FBI, even the CIA, and even the FBI has offices overseas doing uh, this kind of stuff, military kind of stuff. It's kind of strange to me. Um, You make a point of how the culture of militarism is affecting our society. Yeah, that's that's really one of the main things we want to get across in this report. Like not just uh, the overall dollar amounts uh, of, of what's going toward to militarization versus everything else, but also the different ways that foreign militarization, like what people think about when they think about militarism, which is uh, the military itself, like different types of, of war spending. Um, there are all sorts of ways, especially in the past two years, that that comes back uh, within our own borders. So all these things like um, immigration enforcement, like drug enforcement, like policing, these uh, forms of, uh, you know, domestic security are getting more and more militarized and more, um, like in some ways, more more violent. Um, like there are all sorts of weapon systems that are like weapons of war, like tanks and uh, like uh, in some cases like missiles, things like that, that are being sent to uh, police departments or to uh, border enforcement. And... Um, they're like part of that is just because they're so available, like because there's been so much uh, spending on these these weapon systems and um, like all these things to to fight wars in other countries. Like once those are seen as less necessary abroad, uh, there's there's just a, a surplus of them, so they're basically sold back or provided cheaply or in free of cost uh, to law enforcement agencies within U.S. borders. So there's a program called the 1033 program. Um, that uh, directly uh, delivers weapons uh, from from the DoD or military equipment of all kinds, not just weapons, uh, but they they include things like mine-resistant vehicles, aircraft, drones, um, ammunition. Um, these equipments are are transferred to federal agencies, um, like the Department of Homeland Security, like the Department of Justice, and also to local and state law enforcement agencies. So um, that, that's that's a big reason why uh, since the 90s and, and over the past uh, 20 years since 9-11, um, like as the U.S. pulled forces out of Iraq, uh, military equipment transfers have skyrocketed um, in the previous year. So that's why um, uh, in the past few years you see a lot more images of the news of, um, you know, things like uh, protests, um, like civilian protests that, you know, might, might be nonviolent are met with 
police uh, that are just totally decked out in military gear, which is something that you didn't see so much a few decades ago. So these are things that, that are, should be concerning, uh, that so much more of our society is becoming militarized. Um, and that's something that we try to draw out the connections of that in our report, that when we talk about militarism, we're not just talking about what the U.S. does in other countries. Um, increasingly, it's about ways that um, other parts of our society are being militarized. It seems easy to blur the lines. People like to forget that our domestic police departments, they're civilians. <laughs> and it's, a, it's really strange to see this, uh, you know, military weaponry going to our police departments. It hardly seems necessary to have an occupying force out of your police department. That's who you call when, you know, there's a prowler or something. So let's Yeah, it, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, alternatives. Uh, let's throw some trillion-dollar figures around. Of what, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what else we could do with this stuff? Um, matter of fact, there's a little calculator on your website, I believe, that yes. uh, that compares what the cost would be to do some other major needs in the country. Uh, uh, let's. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, our, uh, on our website, nationalpriorities.org, we have a trade-off calculator where we lay out different um, pots of money from the federal government, including the military, including uh, like particular weapon systems, uh, things like immigration, border enforcement, prisons, uh, showing how much is spent uh, from the federal budget in the previous year. And then we do automatic trade-offs of how much that money could have funded in other forms of social spending, things like uh, affordable housing units, uh, like jobs that pay $15 an hour or more, mm-hmm. um, uh, elementary school teachers, jobs in clean energy, um, houses with uh, solar power or wind power, all these things that are currently underfunded and, and well, we think should be uh, funded much more. Um, but um, just to show that there is money in the federal government to, to fund big things and we could afford better things if we wanted to. And um, so, so our report um, on the militarized budget lays out all these, uh, you know, <laughs> like pretty disturbing things about where our federal resources go right now. But we wanted to close it on a more, you know, hopeful note just to show that uh, this is how much has been spent over the past 20 years on things that um, if more people are aware of what they are, they would be, probably be somewhat disturbed by. But it's possible in the next 20 years to think about how things could be different. And um we try to make that concrete by showing other big things that we could be spending money on in art right now. So uh, some examples of that, um, you know, if we're talking about climate change, um, it seems like a really uh, big, like, unsolvable thing, uh, which, which it is currently because the federal government is not devoting uh, much resources at all on that. Um, and if we really wanted to invest uh, what is needed on, on uh, a renewable energy infrastructure, it would cost $4.5 trillion over a decade to shift from a fossil fuel energy grid to one powered by renewable sources like energy and wind. So $4.5 trillion is a lot of money, but uh, it, it really pales in comparison to $21 trillion that we spent on a militarized agenda for the past 20 years. And it pales, one re- pales in comparison to what the cost is going to be of uh, damaged infrastructure by not doing it, uh, spending anything on it. Oh, for sure. And especially in the past year, you know, just the past few months, we've seen these massive hurricanes that have devastated the Gulf Coast and, like, uh, you know, the Northeast, um, and uh, there are wildfires in California. So year by year, we're seeing in real time how much damage is being caused by by climate impacts. 
because this is just something that, you know, one way or another, we're going to have to pay for something, either dealing with the after effects um, mm-hmm. after they've already caused a lot of devastation, or we could invest a lot of resources up front in building the infrastructure that can help us all, you know, get through it together. Mm-hmm. Let me so, toss so, out. A, oh, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so that's just one big example uh, for for a decarbonized electric grid. It would cost four point five trillion. Um, another thing, if we're talking about you know creating jobs uh, uh, for a little over two trillion dollars, we could create five million jobs for fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, what benefits and cost of living adjustments for? But, Ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, if we wanted to er- erase student debt, that would cost one point seven trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just getting rid of all student debt that that uh, graduates currently have. Um, if we wanted free preschool for every three and four year old in the country uh, for for a decade, that would cost two hundred billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's uh, that's just something that you know so many families would benefit from. Uh, that many families have to struggle with not having care. Um, and another big thing uh, right now is, is COVID, obviously. So if we wanted to, um, you know, really securely be able to reopen the economy and, uh, you know, be confident that COVID would not keep ravaging, uh, <laughs> like mutations keep arising, mm-hmm. one thing we could do is make sure vaccines are actually accessible to everybody in the world. What a right concept. Now, yep. uh, <laughs> right now, the U.S. is, uh, you know, like, like obviously not everybody's vaccinated and there are issues there but the u.s has vaccine access which many other countries don't because uh, it's that they're just not being produced in ways that are available if we wanted to do that for the entire world it would cost 25 billion dollars to produce enough vaccines for for everybody on the planet is that, that all is that all yeah yeah i mean that 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 might sound a lot in isolation 25 billion no. but again we're talking we're comparing that to 21 trillion dollars mm-hmm. uh yeah. that's already been spent on militarization so so there are just all these things that seem like massive projects by themselves but if you add them up like all the things that i named just now as other things you could spend on are like less than half of the militarized budget <laughs> yeah, wait so Yes. So there's just so many things that we didn't even name here that, um, you know, the cost of um, getting rid of homelessness in the U.S. to house every person who's currently homeless in the U.S., mm-hmm. that would probably be less than $20 billion. Wow. So it's just, re- yeah, it's really astounding, like all the things that our society is currently not able to do because resources are not put into that. But we're spending so much more on things that are actually causing harm. Speaking of causing harm, we talked a little bit about how some of this uh, excess military spending could be diverted toward helping deal with the climate crisis. Uh, how about the military as one of the creators of the climate crisis to begin with? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, so we, with uh, National Priorities Project, put out a report last year called No Warming, No War, uh, which uh-huh. lays out... Um, all the ways that militarism fuels the climate crisis, and the climate crisis, uh, you know, creates incentives for more militarization um, if if governments don't, you know, invest in alternatives. So one uh, just concrete example of that is is how the Pentagon itself is a major polluter. Um, the, the Pentagon is the world's largest institutional user of petroleum, um, and a big part of that is just how many jets the military has. Uh, just one of the military's jets uh, consumes about as much fuel in one hour as the average car driver uses in seven years. So wow. there's just a t- there's just a, a ton of uh, yeah fossil fuel use in the military itself. 
um, and also um, a big function of the military for the past few decades has been, um, you know, securing fossil fuel resources. Like it's kind of become maybe a cliche to think about, you know, the U.S. fighting wars for oil, uh, but uh, you know, it's 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 true. Like for since um, 1973, uh, about a quarter to one half of all wars uh, it, on on the planet have been linked to oil. And um, it's it's just um, yeah, it's like the Pentagon both pollutes a lot itself and also serves the function of you know enforcing the fossil fuel economy. So so this really has to change. Um, and um, more and more, you know, it, it's being talked about how the Pentagon is taking climate change seriously and is thinking about, you know, how it can, how we can green the military, like shift Pentagon resources to renewable sources or other things like that, which, you know, it, it's generally a good thing for any part of society to be thinking about how to become greener. But the problem uh, with, uh, you know, if we're just going back to the question of accountability, like the fact that the Pentagon can't even pass an audit raises a lot of questions <laughs> over, like, okay, is the Pentagon going to use resources uh, from Congress to actually green itself, or is it just going to become more reasons to raise costs mm -hmm. um, without even necessarily addressing, you know, like how can we even be, like, be confident that the fu like, more funding will go to the purposes it goes to? So we think that, you know, the best way to make the military greener is to shrink its footprint <laughs> mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, reinvest resources to uh, greening civilian infrastructure, like really making sure that all society is prepared to get through the climate crisis and address it directly rather than over-investing in the military, because often over-investing in the military comes at the very high cost of under-investing in other social needs. Indeed. Um, I want to make a wisecrack here about uh, just, just picturing the day. Imagine the day in the future when we can all drive over to our local Army-Navy surplus store and buy <laughs> surplus solar panels, Surplus batteries to run our <laughs> homes, you know, at night from the you know solar energy generated during the day, etc. Just just picture that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it's just um, it it is true that the the military right now is is um, it just has a massive logistical capacity. There are all these resources put into it mm -hmm. uh, right now that make it effectively the largest public jobs program in the United States, mm -hmm. and. Um, there, there are all sorts of ways we might be able to imagine shifting that massive capacity, those logistics, uh, you know, resources to, to other purposes. Like, what if we were able to redirect that to, you know, actual disaster relief or, um, like, uh, chipping resources during times of crisis, like, uh, like during COVID? There are all these massive um, shortages of, of necessary health equipment. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there was uh, the use of something called the Defense Production Act, uh, which was uh, a law from, I think, the World War II era or post-war era, which allowed the federal government to uh, basically, like, commandeer private industry to make them, uh, you know, stop producing things like, like cars or military equipment or stuff like that, uh, and instead use their industrial capacity to, to make uh, socially needed things. Mm -hmm. Like, so in the, in the time of COVID, creating, like, ventilators or protective equipment, um, there are ways we can imagine that being used to, you know, create more, uh, like, sustainable infrastructure for, like, against climate, like, for energy or something. But it, it requires just, um, you know, shifting the industrial capacity that the government uh, does have the power to direct. But uh, that, that means taking, a lot, taking on a lot of powerful 
factors. Yeah, well, it's coming, but in the meantime, the, you know, the, the environmental damage uh, from climate change just, just adds up. And so uh, who knows yep. when, when the government will, will get it, but it's happening slowly. <laughs> While we're on the subject of planetary disaster, uh, what do you have to say about findings on um, increased expenditure on nuclear war? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question that should get a lot more attention than it does. Um, so nuclear weapons uh, are, you know, something that a lot of Americans probably haven't heard a lot about lately as much as they did a few decades ago. Um, but spending on wep nuclear weapons has continued to increase. Uh, the United States still has uh, more nuclear weapons than any other country in the world. And um, rather than... Um, you know, thinking about how we start winding down nuclear weapons, uh, which, you know, most people probably agree should never be used. Um, there's actually been more spending since uh, the Obama administration on, 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 uh, on quote-unquote, modernizing mm -hmm. nuclear weapons, which just means increasing the stockpile. Um, so, so this is dangerous. Uh, obviously, like, the more nuclear weapons there are, uh, the more likely... It, it is that eventually they'll be used. And, um, you know, there's such devastating weapons that, that have not been used since uh, since World War II, and um, they've continued to proliferate in ways that are that are dangerous and just creates incentives for other governments to, to get their own nuclear weapons as well. So, um, so that's just one example of something that we would propose, like m making plans to cut entirely over the, uh, like on, on some time frame, um, rather than, talking about increasing them, which is where we're at right now. Mm -hmm. Our Veterans for Peace friend would, would really want us to mention that there was a U.N. treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons uh, passed uh, January 22nd of this year, but I don't think any of the nuclear powers actually signed it. Mm -hmm. And I always like to slip in a comment about uh, modernization being such a euphemism for, mm -hmm. uh, for, for worsening the uh, you know the nuclear arms race, the um, not only does it mean you know more nukes, it means more accurate nukes, and that's bad mm -hmm. news because that's what motivates those super militarists to consider going first, because they think they can you know take out you know an enemies or perceived enemies, they, you know their nuclear weapons and not suffer any 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 uh, you know second strike kind of scenario and that's been the a philosophy since the 80s that has been going on since the uh the initial modernization happened during the reagan era and uh and the people that 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 deal with nuclear weapons you know theory war theory and that kind of stuff realize that well if we make them more accurate they're more likely to be used and that's bad news so that kind of modernization is uh is bad for society in general okay we're going to squeeze in a phone call hi you're on the air Hi, um, I have a question. I'm not sure if your guests will be able to answer it, but um, with all this information out there, and I'm in 100% agreement with you guys that things need to change. They needed to change a long time ago. Um, with all this information out there, what is driving average Americans to not react to this or to not uh, to kind of, say, bury their heads in the sand and act like this just doesn't exist? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for asking that. I want to know that, too. <laughs> so what do you think, Ashik? That's a very good question. Um, I would say, I mean, from my vantage point, like I and, and other collaborators on this report are just the ones who, you know, assembled this data and published it last week, but we're not the ones who are, um, you know, like, uh, 
we're not packaging it for mass consumption. Like, that's the job of the media. That's the job of, uh, you know, citizens groups. So we're trying to make it as available as possible uh, to anybody who wants to use it in any way. But I think that's where the question of politics comes in, like how people organize and how uh, how this gets across to more people. Because right now, I'm not sure, like, how many people are actually seeing this information. Um, we're, like, I'll say, based on... Um, uh, the media interest we've gotten so far, uh, including from from you, uh, which uh, I'm very grateful to be talking to you here. Um, I would say broadly, the interest we've gotten is more from sort of like left, like progressive uh, media. Um, so, so I think there's still a lot of work to be done to get more people to uh, to, to even know about this, um, and uh, that that takes organization. Um, there are all sorts of questions about you know how how information travels on social media, like whether it you know gets caught and just uh, political bubbles of people mostly sharing information with people who already kind of already agree with them. So, um, so yeah, I think that's where the question of politics comes in, and um, you know, uh, which uh, which politicians are are using the information in, in which ways. And to that end, I think um, in, in Congress right now there are probably are more people. Um, uh, so certainly among on the progressive side, but I think including some Republicans as well who are starting to become more critical of the militarized agenda. Um, but a lot of work needs to be done from from citizens to you know make their voices heard and and really make sure that their interests are being reflected in government, which is really still not the case, even though there are more people paying attention now. Yeah, let me add that that you know the political situation in the country. I mean, it's fascinating, uh, although uh, sad sometimes to think about where we are. But uh, but there's a few milestones you know coming up. One of them was to was to watch uh, the the politics around the uh, the what the three point five trillion proposal by the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. Um, for you know climate issues and infrastructure and such in the country, I mean that's a big spending, and and you'll see resistance to it uh, from people that don't bat an eye about spending if, if the military wanted you know trillions more, this kind of thing. So that's one way, and, and we talk on this program plenty about money and politics and how it affects these kinds of decisions. And uh, so this is one milestone coming up. Another one's next year, when the midterms happen next year, we're going to see just you know what influence the political maneuvers uh, will have had that have happened in, in recent years over gerrymandering and voter suppression, all these things. I mean, they affect who's in office and who votes for these things. And these are, you know, watershed events coming up. And then there'll be the, the uh, 2024 uh, you know, presidential election, of course. But, uh, but even the shorter term, uh, you know, next year's uh, midterms and uh, watching the, the $3.5 trillion, uh, uh, proposal in uh, in watching the news about that is a good way to to see well what's really going on in uh, in Washington about this. Okay, we have two minutes left, so um, Mashik, I wonder if you want to say any last words about this study and how people can find out more. Yeah, sure. Uh, so everything we publish in National Priorities Project, you can find linked from our website nationalpriorities.org. Um, right now. Uh, Almost everything uh, we're focusing um, on, on promoting is around this report itself, uh, which is called uh, State of Insecurity, the Cost of Militarization Since 9-11. Uh, so we have a landing page that lays out a lot of the key findings, including um, how much uh, money over the past 20 years has gone to different agencies of the government um, as, as part of military spending. And we also break down uh, a lot of alternatives, uh, like things that are big, expensive, programs that are uh, not funded right now that that could be funded as, as different choices over the next 20 years so um 
yeah, uh, the, like in a nutshell, our report uh, just really lays out how the militarization of U.S. domestic and foreign policy over the past two decades, 9-11, has really just wreaked total havoc on our society and around the world. It's cost a ton of lives and well-being for people who have been caught up in our foreign wars and our domestic crackdowns alike. And it's, it's cost a fortune in the process. So in the next 20 years, we really have an opportunity. Uh, this is a really inflection point uh, this year and in the next few years to think about the next two decades. Like, what if we invest just as deeply in our most critical needs, of which there are many, uh, after, you know, a massive pandemic that's cost over 4 okay. million lives around the world. We need, to, yep, we need to wrap up. Sorry, Sheik, but we just have seconds, seconds left. Yeah. So. Thank, Thank you, you for being with us, Ashik Sadiq of the National Priorities Project, which is part of the Institute for Policy Studies. Thanks for being our guest today. Thank you Thank so, you so much. much. Thank you. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.